Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1297, entitled The Jan Who Chilled Out to Don Quixote. <laughs> Our podcast title is Pod Quixote. I'm Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And here we are, rolling along, tilting at some windmills today, <laughs> because we're going to look at uh, the man who killed Don Quixote, Terry Gilliam's latest, or is it, does it really count as his latest film? Well, yeah, I mean, it was. it's both one of his earlier films and his later films, <laughs> given the long development period this one went through. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> All right. Before we get to that, I wanted to quickly have a, a look at a, a Netflix animated series called Drifting Dragons. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which kind of sounds like a, a car sort of thing. <laughs> Tokyo Drifting Dragons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, no surprises here. It uh, is an, a Netflix one based on a manga series, uh-huh. as they so often are. Mm-hmm. And that came out in 2016. And it was uh, written and illustrated by Taku Kuwabara. Now, I'm not familiar with that manga, so down one already. <laughs> <laughs> Anime television series is adapted by Polygon Pictures, and it had its release on April 30th, so, you know, reasonably fresh. It's got 12 episodes. Okay. It's set in a, a fantasy world. It's ostensibly what I would call dirigible punk, which is to say it involves airships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's also a coming-of-age story as there's a young woman who is essentially learning how to work aboard this airship for the first time. So, you know, you've got all of your typical anime characters there. There is <laughs> almost what they call a magic pixie. You know, the guy who's handsome and knows it all, and he's the seasoned crew member who's going to show her the ropes. Got it. Quite literally, because they do have safety ropes to prevent them from falling off this dirigible, which I'll describe as a as a big airship, like a Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. It's got a gondola underneath, but not a small one. It's rather like the size of a, of a boat. Okay. It is actually set up like a boat, except it doesn't have railings, which to me is insane. Ooh, that's a, yeah, that's a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> OHS nightmare. They do have uh, railings that they can hook onto with these things every now and then on the ship. But I guess the main reason why they don't have railings is because it would get in the way of the cables mm. that are attached to the harpoon guns. Oh, now these harpoon guns mm-hmm. are for the drifting dragons, which are great sky whales, ostensibly. Right. Metaphor noted. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, you think? <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine fabric that's sheer enough to tailor a veil to cover this up with because it's essentially whaling 
in the skies. Mm. Now, I've seen this done before, oddly enough, in, in a book called The Wind Wales of Ishmael. That's by Philippe Jose Farmer. He loves to write pastiches. As the old farmer, so he's. If you have to put together, um, if you have to put forward an unholy trinity of pastiche writers, mm-hmm. then you've got Alan Moore, Philippe Jose Farmer, and Kim Newman. Now, in Philip Jose Farmer's book, as you can tell from the title, Ishmael, it actually takes the character of Ishmael from Moby Dick mm-hmm. and puts him on an alien world where he's wailing in the air. Okay, that's an interesting now, concept. It, it was back in the day, and that's I think that's – I'm not sure, but it's probably like uh, 70s or 80s sure. or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't bother because I'm digressing here quite a bit. To come back to Drifting Dragons, it's incredibly revolting. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. I don't know what Netflix was thinking when they bought this one. Oh. <sighs> Look, if you come to anime, as some often do via – the gateway of the generally gentle, civilised masterpieces of Studio Ghibli, Noisica of the uh, Valley of the Wind, that's a signature example of an incisive dive into an environmental theme. Mm. Well, you know what I mean. Those are the sort of things that you get used to. Okay, then there's your other side of anime, the ones where the creators show a very unseemly interest in World War II German military history and technology, right down to uniforms and so on. Mm -hmm. I kind of think that's almost like, you know, Godzilla is essentially a metaphor for the atomic bomb. I think that they use it for the Japanese militarism from World War II. So you can actually sort of shunt it sideways to the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty unsavory when you think about it. And look, anime has a lot of problems in its darker corners. We all know that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Well, here's a dark corner. (laughs) Rob's gone and looked for you, so you don't have to look at it. <laughs> yes. Imagine if the premise of Mel Brooks's The Producers, which is to say making a Broadway musical about Hitler, was done seriously without the satire. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, instead of, you know, as a, as a deliberate loss-making dodge that was so bad that it's good. Now, I'm not going to digress further with examples of that where it, they actually do that, but there would be a way of making this series work with the, I guess, the eventual realisation that the crew, and they call what they're doing draking, mm. as in Draco dragoning, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they could realise that what they were doing was actually quite hideous. But then they have these gleefully lip-smacking dragon meat breakout boxes in each episode, cooking lessons. They go in a, into it at great length how delicious the dragons are. Spit on the nose, isn't it? <laughs> In the first episode, they kill a, a dragon straight up and then they butcher it on the ground, you know, the whole flensing thing, pulling out the meat. They can't wait to eat the damn thing. Wow, it's so delicious, right? While they're on the ground, they're uh, visited by some villagers nearby and they sell them some of the meat mm-hmm. and uh, the oil that they've rendered from the, sure. the whale. There is a problem from their point of view, from the drucking crew. Nobody much likes them in the villages on the ground, and they spend most of their time in the air hunting the dragons. Mm. There aren't that many dragons left. Gee, I wonder why. Mm. They are all such beautiful creatures and also quite dangerous. These have teeth. I was thinking about this the other day, actually. All cetaceans are actually carnivores, technically. They're either eating krill or else other whales in mm. the case of orcas or, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. or fish in the case of other things. Um, the big sperm whales, they actually eat um, giant squid and other oh, yeah. larger sea creatures and so on. In this, they're very, very dangerous uh, and they can uh, knock a ship out of the sky. They're, apparently, they attack 
villages. Mm. So we've actually got this recrafting of mm. whaling. Got it, yeah. To make, yeah. Like yeah. kind of a, a noble pursuit that's yeah. not just uh, fueled by greed. I wonder what, I mean, it's interesting. I wonder what they're trying to say here. Like it doesn't sound very nuanced. Like there's nuanced discussions that you can have around the topic. But yes. I don't think this is, this is clearly not one of them. It is not. You know, and it's revealed that the first a dragon that they kill mm. is actually a baby one mm-hmm. and then its mother comes looking for it. Oh. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not the kind of series that I have any sympathy for whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And when they try and make out the uh, the crew are hard done by because the villagers don't like them. Yeah. Just sort of thinking, get stuffed. It, yeah. <laughs> <Basically>. <laughs> I was going to say it doesn't sit right, but I like your way of putting it. <laughs> and not on dragon meat either. Now, somewhere out there, there are deeply sophisticated and philosophical anime that do tackle controversial issues with nuanced, as you said, and intelligent analysis while combining them with exciting storytelling, interesting characterizations and striking animation. But this is obviously not one of them. The animation is actually interesting. They do have CGI uh, ships in it and some of the whale, the dragon. See, I keep saying whales all the way through. It's impossible to divorce that from what they're talking about. Uh, and the characterizations are a bit a bit too anime tropey yeah. for me. You know. Yeah, yeah. So I would avoid this like the plague that it is. <laughs> did you make it? How many episodes did you like give it a chance, or did you watch the whole thing? I have I have actually broken my rule. Mm. I normally wouldn't be this caustic about a series that I've only watched one episode mm, of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it honked me off so much. Now, look, mm. I probably should have gone in and watched a couple more, and normally at zero G style I would have, but <laughs> I just thought this is foul. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and you can get you can get only into all these arguments about uh, you know about oh you're a hypocrite you eat meat etc. I don't even bother with that. Mm. We're not yet. <laughs> I'm, We're not- I'm like the guy in the Mandalorian. I have spoken. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, like I said, there's so many conversations we can have. But at the end of the day, if a series isn't done well and its message isn't clear and there's nothing that you're getting from it. I think you're fine to dismiss it for sure. Ooh, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Avoiding. Yeah. Noted. Yes. Drifting Dragons on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> just, just in case you want to go, I'll show that, Rob Jan. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll watch it and I'll enjoy it. But, you know, don't talk to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to continue on with something that's much more entertaining from my perspective. Mm-hmm. And as you know, I've been hanging out for months for new Iron Man comics. Yes. And finally, finally, they've come in, got it from All-Star Comics. Marvel is shipping again for Diamond Distribution. Yay. And this year was the big Iron Man 2020 year. Mm-hmm. So it was riffing off earlier stories where uh, Tony Stark was replaced by his relative Arno. In the current continuity of Iron Man, Ono Stark is actually the biological son of uh, Maria and Howard Stark. He's been in, um, ironically, an iron lung type situation for most of his life, but he's out now. Finding that his adopted brother, because Tony Stark is not actually the biological Stark heir, but he was actually fathered by a Hydra agent and a female rock star. Wow. Who was a shield, who was a shield agent. That's a whole other story that we've been into before. The, the current Tony Stark 
was killed by Captain Marvel mm-hmm. in a battle and then kind of resurrected. And now <laughs> just it's, it's so complicated trying to get through all this. And is having a crisis of identity because mm. he doesn't know if he's the real Tony Stark. He doesn't feel like he's the real Tony Stark. Mm-hmm. So he's rechristened himself Mark One mm-hmm. after his first suit of armor and has been actively involved in a, a rebellion of robot AI, computers, and androids and all other mechanical creatures, of which there are many in the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. And that's been the main thing. And, of course, Arno Stark is working with Sunset Bain. Mm. The Bain Company is another one of those ones that has it in for Stark Industries or Enterprises or International <laughs> or whatever you want to call it in any of the incarnations. Yeah. And Arno is basically trying to take over um, Stark Industries. He's done it, mm. essentially. Stark resilient. I can't remember what the hell they call it in this one. He's now in charge of all of that, fighting against the robot revolution with Tony on the other side. And Tony's just been killed again. (laughs) But never fear. And this is all in Iron Man 2020, issue number four. Mm -hmm. The writers are Dan Slott and Christos Gage. The artist is Peter Woods. We've all color artists, uh, Celeste Woods plus Pete. So, you know, there's a bit of family stuff going on there. It's just strange, even for Iron Man or even strange for Doctor Strange. (laughs) In this one, Tony actually has his big crisis of confidence, even though he's dead, and he has one of these sort of virtual reality conversations. As I've often said, it's Tony Stark's inevitable destiny to be uploaded Mm. into the cloud or into some sort of cybernetic sort of entity. Yeah, like the opposite of what happened to Jarvis and Vision. (laughs) Yeah, actually, that's a pretty good metaphor. I think that they're approaching this once again. He's lost his posse of friends and colleagues, mm. but they're still in there trying to, to help him out, even though he doesn't know it. <laughs> like the sentient cat who was a professor in his company, working to uh, assist his, not his master, but his, um, his boss. <laughs> this is how wacky it's getting. All right, at the same time, what's Pepper Potts doing? Well, she is now a uh, rescue as Mm -hmm. she was in Avengers Endgame, so she's got her own armour. And she's on a quest to try and find Tony's biological father, the uh, the Hydra agent, and get some DNA from him. So she infiltrates a Hydra base. Uh, Easy. Why not? (laughs) She goes there (laughs) as a job applicant. (laughs) (laughs) I I like that. Why not just walk straight in? She does, exactly. That, she's, she's got her armour in her purse. Well, <laughs> in the process, she runs into a young rookie intern who's just out of high school. Uh, <laughs> the writer's Dana Schwartz and the artists are Jason Burrows and Scott Hanna. And I really enjoyed that one. In fact, I enjoyed both of these issues. Look, obviously I'm, a, I'm probably a little bit biased at the moment because I'm um, sort of so sad because I want to see more... <laughs> Yeah. Comics. I don't know exactly, and they may have been cancelled, but don't gospel me on that because I'm not quite sure. Two other comics that were in the um, the Iron Man 2020 big sort of splash out were uh, Force Works and uh, Machine Man, and I'm still trying to figure out what's going on with those. So obviously the, the, the plans that they had have been derailed, yeah. and whether or not they're picking them all up again, I don't know. Mm. But Definitely with Iron Man and Rescue, they're, they're still in there punching. And I know it's all going to change soon because they've got some uh, some new people coming in. Here we are, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm just glad to have comic books. Isn't that sad? 
no. I think so I think it's, it's nice that, yeah, we still, those little things that bring you joy, we can't discount those. No, <laughs> I agree. All right, so I've got a track to play here that is from something called the Iron Man musical, Iron Man 3 musical. So what they've actually done is they've sort of taken the plot of Iron Man 3 and, and when I say that, they, I mean Logan, Huenic, Clark, Iron Man Free the Musical. It only seems to have one track on it, though, but there you go. And so it's really riffing off the plot of the Iron Man 3 movie, so they'll sort of recount that a little bit. There's too many uh, Fs and THs in this. Off we fly with Iron Man 3 the Musical. Triple R. Hi, this is Fraser Hines. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Look at the size of that thing, Doctor. Yeah, yes, Jamie, that is a big one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Iron Man 3, the musical. They did a pretty good job of re-accounting some of the events of the movie. And by they, I say Logan Huaney Clark. And it's just a single and I have no idea. (laughs) I'm a bit more clued up. I believe, about what we're going to look at next, which is Terry Gilliam's latest movie. Mm. We'll, go, we'll go with latest. This has been in the works for rather a long time. And it is The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, first off, where can you find this? Well, I got the DVD. And this was the Umbrella distribution one. It's a No Thrills single disc, but it's also on SBS On Demand at the moment. Yes, so you can watch it for free on SBS On Demand. I actually watched it on Amazon Prime, so it's also on there if you subscribe to Amazon Prime. Well, Megan's watched this. Yes. And I don't know, how many other films of Terry Gilliam's have you seen? Uh, That's a good question. I feel like I've seen, I mean, I've seen... At some point, I remember watching the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Yeah. I remember watching it. I don't remember literally anything about the film or what it, you know, was about. I did watch Brazil, I'm pretty sure, when I was at university. I think a couple of his early ones I probably did watch, but again, like 12 Monkeys, I don't remember much about that except Brad Pitt's Bung Eye, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I only remember Johnny Depp. So, look, I probably – I wish I had sort of more closely watched some of his stuff, but when I was younger, like when a lot of those came out, I wasn't really the core audience for Gilliam stuff, like Brazil and whatnot. Like he wasn't aiming that at me when I was 10 or whatever. So what's your experience with Gilliam? Well, I go back to the Monty Python years, so I will say that uh, this new film is not something completely different. It is a blend of two of his passions. And I say that deliberately because it's a bit of a medieval passion play in some mm-hmm. respects. So, okay, you look at things like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which really establishes with the Holy Grail in 75, he's establishing his lifelong fascination with the matter of Britain and the Arthurian legends. He's also a, a medievalist of some renown, sharing that with the late Terry Jones as well. So then he goes from that to, in 77 to Jabberwocky, which is an, an adaptation oh. of um, Lewis Carroll's poem. Mm. And again, that's sort of, sort of set in a fantasy medieval mm. realm. Life of Brian, of course, takes us back to ancient Judea. Mm. And 
then time bandits takes us all over the place. Yeah. Then you've got Brazil. So that's in his science fiction um, areas, Brazil and 12 monkeys falling into those particular areas. But we bounce back in 88 to the adventures of Baron Munchausen, Mm -hmm. which uh, this film does resemble in several ways. Another one in 91, the one with Robin Williams, The Fisher King. Yeah. It's actually another Arthurian film too, by the way. And the Brothers Grimm in 2005. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I watched that. Matt Damon, I think. I don't remember it being that memorable, to be honest. It's a good little take on um, the Brothers Grimm, which is in the title. So, yeah, how smart am I? <laughs> and, and Imaginarium, of course. Um, uh, what's that, Brit, uh, the Irish guy? Colin Farrell, um, Heath Ledger, and, yeah. yeah. They had to cobble that one back together as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Johnny was in and, that. Jude Law, he's the other one I'm thinking of. That's right, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then, and, then, and so they all, these two, the two main strands, the uh, the interest in, in the medieval and beyond mm-hmm. all sort of blend together in this one with his interest in adapting uh, in various sorts of literature. So it's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote and it's co-written with Tony Grissoni by Terry Gillum. Now, I have to take you back <laughs> even further, <laughs> even further to the original novel. My particular copy of Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes is the 400th <gasps> anniversary edition. Nice. Which is a, a great thick tome yeah. that I have been, because I, I have actually read Don Quixote once very many decades ago. And I thought I'd give it a crack for the 400th anniversary recently, mm. not not this year. I've just been keeping it by my bedside table and just reading five or six pages each night. This has been my companion sleepy time book <laughs> for the, the bushfires, for the pandemic. <laughs> uh, wow. And and hopefully that'll be all of the the catastrophes that it um, <laughs> sees it serves me. Actually, very nicely illustrated too, with these almost uh, woodcut style engravings. Etching, yeah, they're lovely. Where they've used um, very surreal sort of characters, like they'll turn a, a giant hand into a knight on his horse. Oh, cool! So they have like four fingers, and the and one finger as a as a head. Yeah, cool, um, cool, cool. Which I'm not exactly sure about. Uh, there's probably a long story that goes with that, but I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> the original book was published in 1605, part one, and 1615, part two. And this is such a a foundation novel for Mm. basically uh, literature in general in the Western world. In fact, it's been labelled the first modern novel. And it takes a strand of stories that were very, very popular in Europe before before the, uh, the 17th century in the Middle Ages, there's a lot of Arthurian romance, uh, a lot of chivalrous fiction, song, ballads. It was like the flavour of the month, <laughs> partly because, of course, the the knights and the ruling class were the ones who were writing all the books. Of course. <laughs> or else they're the ones buying all the books. Mm. So this sort of thing was very popular in, in courts. So you've got all of this there, and then – Cervantes comes along and sends it up. Mm, the first but satire. It, yeah, but at the same time, he's also playing to it. Yeah. So it's one of those affectionate, mm. irreverent takes on the whole thing. And 
there are so many different things that it's had an influence upon thereafter. Uh, the Free Musketeers, Huckleberry Finn, Cyrano de Bergerac. Uh, there are words that have come out of this and phrases, rather like Shakespeare, actually, um, mm. uh, quixotic and tilting at windmills, which is something that uh, Don Quixote does. And essentially he's, he's a landed sort of minor gentry in Spain. He's lost the plot a bit. Mm. He's not he's away with the fairies <laughs> quite a bit and manages to manifest that physically. He gets himself um, together a kit of some rust bucket armour, eventually ends up wearing a helmet, which you may have noticed when you watch the film, mm. that looks like a look, looks like a bowl. Yeah. It is. <laughs> it's it's a barber's bowl they used to shave people with. So you put the water in the bowl and and uh, you rest your head back in the little indentation in the in the rim of it. Oh okay. Shave you and cut your hair and stuff. Uh, could also be used by a barber surgeon as well to um, to let blood into Ooh. all sorts of wonderful uh, utilities. But he ends up wearing that as a as a helmet. So he's basically the the knight of the mournful countenance. Everybody can see see he's a joke and they laugh at him, mm. but he takes it seriously. Mm. And it's not just because he's barking, although he is at times. Um, it's just this wonderful, long, extraordinarily rambling tale. Mm. about his adventures and the adventures of other people he encounters and hears about and talks to. And the, the copy I've got is like 920 pages thick <laughs> with commentaries and annotations. Ah, and the old footnote um, edition. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, What's the uh, the imprint? Uh, Restless Classics. <laughs> Restless <laughs> so, okay. Classics, I like that. Yeah. It's also a, a picaresque novel in that he's embarked on this absurd quest, which actually has more philosophical weight than you would think. So, okay, I, I just mentioned that uh, some of the other books, that it's um, it's influenced, but uh, there have been a lot of films about this, uh, and musicals too, by the way, but films, the first film in 1906 was a, a French short film. Uh, you've got dozens of ones after that, ones which flip back and forwards between um, stage productions and musicals and movies and, and all sorts of strange things. Eventually they did do a, a Spanish full-length version in 1947, as you'd expect they, they should have been. There have been comics, um, Soviet filmmakers have had a go at it. Oh, just so many different things. In 1972, one of my favourite adaptations was Man of La Mancha, mm-hmm. directed by Arthur Hiller. That's that's a film version of the stage musical by um, uh, Dale Dale Wasserman, uh, music by Mitch Lee and lyrics by Joe Darian. And the film version in '72 starred Peter O'Toole, yeah. Sophia Loren, James yeah. Coco, and, and Brian Blessed has a, a role in it too. Um, and it's a brilliant adaptation. Everybody tries to sing. <laughs> tries to sing. <laughs> With, with degrees of uh, success. And you've got to remember that um, Quixote is seeing people like uh, tavern wenches and, um, uh, mm. and and just casual passerbys as enchanters or princesses mm. or, you know, so it's, it's all very strange. What do you think about it has made it persist so long through history? Like, I mean, it was written centuries ago, and I can understand, obviously, you know, it's dealing with the upper class, and if they like it, then they're going to carry it on through, um, you know, and and keep its message alive. But why do you think, I mean, it's got to be one of the only novels that's that old that has had that much constant interest? I don't know. 
Well, you know, I was mentioning the Arthurian ones and uh, Arthurian stories and Robin Hood and, and many other ones, um, Beowulf and so on. But, yeah, Don Quixote has actually managed to nail the popular mm. popular heart. And, and I'll, I think there's one reason it straddles classes for mm. a start, um, particularly in the fact that Don Quixote is not alone. Mm-hmm. He's, he's with his squire, Sancho Panza. And... I think that the 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 dichotomy between the two classes there is handled so well mm-hmm. and so amusingly, and you know Sancho knows that his master is a bit loopy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the first time that that the Quixote tilts at um, at windmills, thinking that they're giants, you know, it's pretty obvious, that and that's a famous yeah. That's a famous thing that's referenced everywhere. So I think there's that that to start with. Mm-hmm. The fact that you actually do have this unusual cross-cultural buddy-buddy thing, yeah, and and Sancho is not uh, minor nobility, mm. um, you know. I mean, he's sort of no, no, he just isn't. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to be, and mm. there's much talk about rewarding him with governance of his own island or kingship or something like that. Mm. But you know, <laughs> it just waddles along but it's a it's a good satire on knight errantry too that whole mm. genre of literature which probably doesn't carry much weight now but i, I actually think that it's the two characters in it mm. it's humorous i guess the equivalent in english literature would be jonathan swift's gulliver's travels oh yeah yep mm-hmm. i feel like that's that's the sort of same thing there plus it's about um an older gentleman, Don Quixote, is mm. no longer young. <laughs> um, and that's great, you know, that, mm. the fact that, that, that they've managed to make a hero out of this character who's a bit past his prime, considerably past his prime, um, I think that's important too. And I think that that strikes a poignant note that many people pick up upon. At least those reasons are sort of uh, – I, uh, I was attracted to that. Mm. and. And then there's that basic thing. I was talking about Iron Man before. I just love armor. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's reason enough. <laughs> Even rusty armor. <laughs> so, okay, let's have a track here to uh, to break our conversation a bit. Uh, although Peter O'Toole practically converses his way through this track. It is Man of La Mancha, mm-hmm. and it is from um, the movie with Peter O'Toole in there. Uh, Mitch Lee is the composer of the original lyrics. I actually think Peter O'Toole doesn't do too bad here. In the same way that um, Rex um, Harrison or Richard Harris was also known to do not too badly. (laughs) This is Rob Sherman and you're listening to Zero G. I almost feel like saying ole at the end of that. (laughs) Man of La Mancha, Peter O'Toole, they're warbling away Mm. with the cast of the 1970s-era movie Man of La Mancha. Mm. We've also Sophia Loren and Brian Blessed in the cast list there. What a great cast that was. <laughs> Brian Blessed does a bit of um, scowling and thumping in that, <laughs> as you can imagine. Is there anything that Peter O'Toole couldn't do actorly-wise? I don't think so. Uh, okay, so we're looking at Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which is a a bit of a giveaway, isn't it, really, in the title? Mm, I, isn't it isn't. I hadn't mm. really thought about it, and then just as we were starting, I was like, ah, oh, interesting. Mm. 
So, okay, he started this 25 years ago, mm, working on God. this adaptation. Uh, <laughs> so he got there eventually. The story of the incredible travails, mm. which were which were picaresque in themselves, that he had when he originally tried to do this film, <laughs> are documented well in Lost in La Mancha and He Dreams of Giants. So they actually done two documentaries about the production of this film. And, you know, the, the saga is just amazing. I won't go into it here. Just check out those documentaries if you can because um, <laughs> it's just a remarkable set of circumstances with, yes, lots of terrible things happening, you know, like jet fighter planes ruining the sound recordings and all sorts of stuff, storms and pestilence and plague. And I, <laughs> but then everyone was like, oh, it's such an epic story and then the production of it has been plagued by all these epic things. You know, it all felt very poetic, I think, probably to everyone but Gilliam. As it says at the start of this this final, finally realised film, 25 years in the making and the unmaking. <laughs> and it's actually quite a long film too. Uh, what is it, 133 minutes? Yeah, definitely over Roughly. two hours. Now, when I tell you that the original book can come in at a significant amount of pages, um, you won't actually wonder at that. He's not actually adapting the the, uh, the book, though. No. He, well, he, he is and he isn't, in a way. <laughs> uh, it's essentially a story about a film director whose name is Toby, uh, Toby Grummet, although I, I hardly ever hear his second name, Toby Grummet. And he's played by our old friend, Adam Driver. Yes, Adam. I mean, look, I will say, though it was a long road, I'm happy that it ended with Adam Driver in this movie because I'm always happy to see him in movies. <laughs> because it could have been Robin Williams, Johnny Depp, Ewan McGregor, or Jack O'Connell. Exactly. <laughs> so... So he's a filmmaker who is trying to make a film about Don Quixote. He's he's had um, quite a bit of literally commercial success as a filmmaker doing advertising uh, campaigns, mm-hmm. and he made a film about Don Quixote back when he was a student. Yeah, and this was kind of his entree into the biz. And now he's back in Spain in the same area making this new film. Mm-hmm. Or at least he's trying to. He's having a hell of a time. And he gets reunited with his old character, actor, Jonathan Price, who's playing the role of Don Quixote. So, okay, the stu- he, he played the Don in the student film, and mm-hmm. he's still alive. Yes. Even though he's quite levery now, which is appropriate because he's a, he's a load of old cobblers. He's a Spanish shoemaker mm. named uh, Xavier. Now, this is another character who once again was uh, supposed to have been played by John Cleese, Jean Roche- Rochefort, uh, Michael Palin, Robert Duvall, and John Hurt, all previously cast in the roles. Um, and there's stories behind that, but we won't go into that here now because there's just no time to get into that. And, yeah, the, the there are other actors in he- here, of course, because it's a, an ensemble cast. Stellan Skarsgård. Yes. <laughs> He's playing the, the boss. With relish as well. He's uh, really yeah. enjoying that, I think. He is. Olga uh, Kurialenko plays the boss's wife. And uh, Joanna Ribeiro plays Angelica, 
um, who was also in the film 10 years ago, but she's grown up. And she is Dulcinea, the muse of Don Quixote. We also get a guy called uh, Oscar Giannardo, who's playing this mysterious gypsy who keeps popping up throughout the, the narrative. I also noticed um, uh, Jason Watkins playing uh, Rupert, who's Toby's agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember him as the vampire, the avuncular vampire copper from um, the Being Human series. Time, I think, to go to the soundtrack of Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, Spanish composer Rock Banos, whose work you may be familiar with from films like Sexy Beast, the 2013 Evil Dead, Spike Lee's Old Boy, Ron Howard's Heart of the Sea, and The Girl in the Spider's Web. Hi there, I'm Jen Saska. And I'm Celia Saska. And, and we're the Twisted Twins. And you're listening to Zero G on 3 RFM. Did you love it? That's a good for you too. Heck yeah. Rock Banos's evocative composition, I Am Don Quixote, from Terry Gilliam's long forthcoming film, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which I, Rob Jan, and Megan McHugh are talking about here on Triple R FM. Uh, yeah, so this all spirals out of control as we get really wrapped up in the illusion of cinema. The closest sort of film I can think of to this is uh, Shadow of a Vampire, where we're running into. Um, the reality of making the Nosferatu film, mm, yeah, in getting confused with with uh, actual vampires, yeah, right, yeah. So this is like that one, in in it's surreal, but then again, surreal is pretty much uh, <laughs> Terry Gilliam's non-reality anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> It's shot in Spain on location mm. and thereby hangs even more tales. So Adam Driver is playing the director of this film and uh, he also ends up playing Sancho Panza uh, as, it, as the film develops. Mm. As the films develop because who knows how many are really wrapped into this. Um, it is a long, long tale, but I, I, it's justified to be that long because – like I said, the original book has got so many adventures in it that it deserves a, a bit of a ramble. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was glorious. I, I'm I'm going through this. I, I actually cried at one stage, partly because it was wonderful to see Gilliam's vision mm. realised at last and partly because Aww. it was so funny. Yeah, it's. I'd say it's definitely unique. And, I mean, that's sort of something that you could often describe Gilliam as. I... Partway through, I was like, how are we only halfway through this film? But then by the end, I found myself actually quite moved and I kind of hadn't realised it, but I think it's one of those films where at the time I was like, oh, yeah, that that was good. I like this or that. But I think I'll probably be thinking about it like later this week or, you know, I'll probably still be thinking about it after. And I think it has that strange quality, very immersive and strange mm. and yeah, dramatic, but in this way that I think works, kind of melodramatic. Yeah, mm, mm, mm. quite a ride. Well, I could I could watch this again tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and, and and not take notes this time, which comes sometimes can get in the way of the process of enjoying a film, yeah. especially especially if I take quite so many notes <laughs> as I did with this one. You know, the the costumes are outrageous, the sets are amazing, location shots are great, and they're not shy of showing you the, uh, the, the, the the illusion of cinema in this. They, they play mm. with that quite a lot. 
mm. which is really fun. Yeah. Um, everybody is 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 there for the performance. And Jonathan Price mm. is magnificent as Don Quixote. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. I, and I actually, I've not seen Adam Driver. Have I seen him play a comic role before? Not really. Well, um, uh, yeah, I guess because you wouldn't have. I've seen him in quite a bit, and he's played some yeah. more lighter comedy, but I don't think it would have been anything that you would have watched, Rob. So that's, yeah, I mean, what was your thought? Oh, I don't know about his role in The Dead Don't Die. Was that any comedy there or? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So maybe, yeah. What did you think so, of him? I thought he was good in this. He was very solid, especially when he does some moments that just made me crack up laughing. Yeah. Uh, when he does a little song. <laughs> that scene, actually, that was what grabbed me back into the film quite a bit, that little river yeah. scene, I guess you could say. Um, his delivery is, I thought, quite good in that scene, but, yeah. Look, was it worth the 25-year struggle for Terry Gilliam to do this film? Only he can say. Mm. Uh, I enjoyed this film in and, in and of itself as, as a fan of the whole <laughs> Don Quixote legend, mm-hmm. uh, and I just enjoyed the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. And so from me, as a, on a, uh, a zero-G, yeah, nah, maybe rating, it's it's definitely a, 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 a high yeah. Just, <laughs> and good on him for just sticking to it mm. as as madcap as that adventure was, it in itself reflects the whole Don Quixote story. Yeah. It's it's very much in the spirit of it, right? Yeah. Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is available for free on SBS On Demand. I found it on Umbrella Entertainment DVD and Megan caught up with it on Amazon Prime Streaming. So we've gabbled on a lot today. <laughs> so, well, you know, so I, I guess it's just really up to uh, to having the outtrack. And I'm gonna I'm gonna continue a theme in next week's show and play some of the music from this uh, and other other elements, just because I we can. <laughs> but for our Bowie track for today, we're going to use Golden Years. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm playing that is not only because, of course, uh, Golden Helmet is one of the um, the nicknames of Don Quixote for that uh, barber's um, bowl that he wears, but also because there's a, an anachronistic scene in many of those, actually, in the film um, A Knight's Tale, you know, the Heath Ledger yeah, one? yep, yep. Which is uh, Chaucer's um, one of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and that's set in medieval medieval times. And in that, they there's a a ball that they have, mm-hmm. and they play Bowie's Golden Years there. Love so it. apart apart from Queen and all sorts of they, other, yeah. um, <laughs> they were playing fast and loose with those things, but that's what made it fun. <laughs> yeah, I love that film too. I, I greatly enjoyed that. So we'll go out with Mr. Bowie's Golden Years. Well, that's it for Zero G today. You know what? I reckon we're going to succumb and talk about Hamilton on the next Ooh, show. Yay. Which has dropped on uh, Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Disney Plus. Yeah. Okay. I know nothing about it, oddly enough. I know it's as popular as uh, Les Mis, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe even more. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm excited to take a run at it. I think it'll be fun to discuss. And it starred? David Diggs. That's right, from Snowpiercer. Exactly. That's it for Zero G for today. And Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour and Mr. Bowie with Golden Years. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. 
G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.